0: All right, I have one more announcement before I go into the episode. I know these can be super annoying, but this is not a paid advertisement. This is actually about one of my projects. I made a feature film called Fractals, and guess what? It is now available for streaming. Just visit my website, ericnorcross.com. Look for the movie Fractals, and there will be a list of platforms where you can stream it. Thanks. Thanks. Maybe we should start with that because it, it, this goes into your new book uh, and is, is it okay if we go back that far? Oh sure. Okay sure. cool. Um, can you start by talking about just introduce the listeners to who you are and and how you got into writing what you write about? Okay
1: sure, sure. Uh, my name is Miriam Van Scott I uh, began my career as a research and news writer. I worked for a local newspaper and I was always interested in sort of um, unusual subjects and topics growing up. I read a lot of Stephen King. I watched a lot of Twilight Zone and a lot of old horror movies. I was always interested in that. And at one point I was trying to find a book that sort of brought all the different ideas of the afterlife into one volume so that. Instead of if I wanted to learn about, let's say I wanted to learn about hell, it used to be I'd have to get some religious books to learn about what they said about it. And then I'd have to get some myth books to see Greek myth, Egyptian myth, Babylonian. Um, the pop culture, I would just sort of have to search through you know, um, sort of likely topics like horror movies. Uh, this was, of course, before the Internet. There was, you know, you can just type in a keyword and come up with stuff. Well, I couldn't find a book like that, so I decided I would try to write one, and that's, that was my, my first books really were Encyclopedia of Heaven and Hell. Um, I'd originally envisioned it as one volume, but when it got to the publisher, they decided to split it into two because it was just so much going on. It, It just made more sense. So those were my first two books that came out. They came out right around the, I think one came out in 1998 and the other came out in 1999. But I started researching them back in the early to mid-90s when research really back then was libraries, books, talking to actual sources, trying to find a friend of a friend who might have like an old video I could watch that I'd heard about. Maybe it had a scene about hell, but there was no, you know, there was no Netflix back then. So while I was writing the hell book, um, I did come upon a lot of material that I didn't feel comfortable in including in my books at the time. Some of it didn't exactly fit because it was more about Satan or about you know horrible crimes or whatever. But then other things, I just, I didn't want people, I didn't want to read it here in the news someday that somebody did something terrible to an animal or a child or whatever and said, oh, I got the idea from this book. So I sort of kept all those notes aside. And as I've learned as a research writer, never throw anything away. <laughs> so I still have all my notes. I still have all my notes going back to the news stories I did back in the
0: 80s was was it like ritualistic type Shit.
1: yeah the, yeah, the, yeah there were a lot of most of the really dark things the darkest of the things i should say would be yeah crimes and it was it wasn't real it wasn't people who really were satanists doing it it would be some teenager or some crazy person or some you know it was always something and they would do this saying oh i'm doing a satanic ritual i'm doing a sacrifice or whatever um but it really it, it wasn't in any sort of organized fashion but it was some of it was really brutal really really brutal Um, So I saved all those notes. (laughs) And then I talked to some other people, too, a lot of very nice people. I talked to uh, different priests and rabbis and um, shamans and imams and clerics. And um, and and so it sort of spanned the the gamut. And even some of the things they told me that they had a lot of really interesting stories, but it didn't really fit. My topic was descriptions of the physical place of hell. So it wasn't this particular demon or this particular person who supposedly was damned, unless they had a story like of going to hell there, you know, if it involved hell, the place, then I would include it in the book. But some of the things just didn't, they didn't quite fit. So I kept them. And then years later, that's what, that's a lot of the source material I used when I was writing and Gate.
0: Mm. Well, when you were initially researching the hell book, uh, what did you, did you come into any uh, resistance from like some of the priests or?
1: Um, I got a lot of warnings. No, nobody said. Um, nobody told me. Oh, this is a bad idea. You shouldn't do it because it was always from the beginning. It was always a research book. It's not. It doesn't take any position. For example, it mentions what um, it mentions what Christians think about it, what Muslims think, what Zoroastrians think. It, it just sort of gives the facts. It doesn't say. Oh, this is what hell is, or this is what hell is not, or here's what they got right. Here's what they got wrong. It's literally just an encyclopedia. So they knew I wasn't, I wasn't doing it as sort of an advocacy or I wasn't trying to sensationalize it. It was literally just a research book, but I did get a lot of warnings saying that, well, you know, a lot of people, they don't realize that when you're involve yourself in anything evil, you're, you are kind of opening the door, um, in a spiritual sense, a lot of people say that, Oh, well, I'm just going to, you hear the word dabble. I'm just going to dabble in it. There's the priest. all <laughs> said the same thing. There's, no thing. There's no such thing as dabbling. And then um, just from a, from a research point, I wasn't trying to like sell a position on, on one idea or the other, but still the, the clerics and some other people just said, e- even so, just from a, uh, you know, if you take religion out of it, there's a lot of really ugly, horrible stuff out there that you're now putting into your mind. So you can expect to have nightmares and anxiety, maybe, maybe become cynical about, you know, humanity in general. So I did get a lot of those kind of warnings. Um, I had a couple of people offer me things that I would not take cause I didn't want them in my home. <laughs> so, like and, and objects, the objects, drawings, um, especially when I sold the idea for the books, I had, I didn't have any children yet. It was early 1993. By the time the books, it took a couple of years to research them again, because it was pre-internet and you know, it was, it was very um, labor intensive by the time the books came out, I had three children who were all little. And so I just didn't want to have that stuff in the house. Um, even some of the things uh, I did have at one point, I would make notes about if, if I saw a photo of something really bad, I would make notes on the photo and then I would get rid of the photo. Or I would, you know, make notes on the particular object or the statue um, on the band and get cover. In fact, there's a there's a graphic on, on the that has a goat head inside a circle. That was supposed to be a pentagram. And I told my, i told my publisher even now, it's like, I don't want a pentagram on that book. Not next to my name. Just, I just do not want to mess with that. And so they spent a lot of time revising that because uh, apparently it wasn't as easy as I thought to just erase the pentagram off. But I just, I, I do take it seriously enough that, and, and there's a part in Band and Gate where I talk about, I don't have my palm read. I don't do tarot cards. I don't do Ouija boards. I just, I don't want to mess with that.
0: I just don't. Yeah, well, you know, it's it's interesting because that whole same warning comes with um, people who tend to be interested in the UFO phenomenon uh, talk about how they wouldn't see anything. And the moment they de- publicly declare interest in it, they'll see their first, first thing. It's like it knows. Yeah. And yeah. it's weird how that overlaps like that.
1: You never know. You just never know. So I, I can definitely understand that. Why I take chances.
0: Yeah. Uh, in certain respects, normality is a good thing.
1: So,
0: I mean, so from what I understand though, in researching, in researching all this, you did have bad dreams. You started having oh, yeah. nightmares. And,
1: yeah. I had nightmares. Uh, I had some pretty serious nightmares. Um, in almost all of them, it involved either my children or my family. It was always, it was always very personal in that sense. I did not have dreams of, Oh, I'm watching wandering through hell per se, or I'm in, you know, being jabbed by, with pitchforks by demons, or I'm up in flames. It was almost always terrible things happening to my family. And it was almost in every case, I was the one doing it, which was a lot more traumatic because some of them were so real. And when I woke up and I, you know, the one that's, that I described when in the book, that was probably the worst. And it was one of the, um, I think it was one of the last ones I had, but where um, I thought there was an intruder in my house. I thought there was someone in my house and I stabbed them right above the right in, in the chest. And then when I looked up, it was my son. And this, and my son in the dream gave me this look that like, oh, mom, it's OK. I know I'm going to die, but I still love you. And that image stayed with me. I mean, I can it's been 20 some years. I can still picture it. I mean, it was really, really traumatic. Um, and then there were other dreams, too, of. Um, me, you know, poisoning their food or setting traps for the kids or watching them suffer where I would come upon them, you know, being attacked by a dog or whatever. And I would just sort of stand by and be like, Oh, well, they're getting attacked by a dog. And, and it was pretty, pretty disturbing.
0: Yeah. Well, I would imagine that somehow you, you managed to open up something like a really The thing that would get you the most, like walking through a fiery pit would probably not be that scary to you personally. So, of course, it wouldn't.
1: And I think, too, one uh, one cleric had said to me, sometimes the scariest thing in our lives is really facing our own depths of depravity. Like sometimes that's really fearsome is to think, oh, my gosh, how much evil am I personally capable of? That is a very frightening thing to contemplate, whether you believe in the afterlife or not. You know, everybody likes to think, oh, we're nice people and we wouldn't do bad things. But everybody has at least some capacity to do something wrong and to really sit down and think, well, what exactly? exactly is my you know how deep does that well go that's a scary thing and i imagine that was part of it too and 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 then as you said especially as a new mom the idea of my kids being hurt was a lot more visceral and painful than like you're saying than any kind of physical torture going walking through fire getting you know stabbed or whatever but, yeah, the idea of it was just it was it really was it was something that really struck pretty hard. And then, of course, there's always the question of it's the whole which came first, the chicken or the egg. Would I have had the nightmares if I hadn't been warned? Oh, my gosh, you're going to have terrible nightmares. So there, it was sort of like a cycle of, of these, you know, these negative pictures and images definitely going through my mind, the reality that, oh, this is probably going to affect me. And then when they did affect me, it was sort of like reinforcing the whole, oh, you've been warned, but you did it anyway. And that's what I'm saying. It was sort of like a cycle. Um, But yeah, that, that uh, that was pretty much ongoing for, it took a couple of years to write the heaven and hell books i researched them at the same time just because with the original sources there was so much overlap you know i'm not gonna i'm not gonna get in an appointment with a um you know a cleric to talk about heaven and then come say can i come back six weeks later and talk about hell so we were just sort of talking about everything and then when i got home i sort of separated my research out um and that's why it took people say oh well why did it take you know two or three years that's that's really why because i was doing them at the same time but obviously the the hell immediately emerged as soon as I started doing the research, hell emerged as the one, the one that was going to be much more information available, much more visual, much more. I don't want to say, inter- I always say interesting and I joke that heaven's boring, but what I mean by that is hell fires the imagination in a way heaven does not when people <laughs> think about heaven, they tend, you can go to any culture, any religion, they tend to think about the same kinds of things. I'm with my family and my loved ones. I am not sick anymore. Everything is, you know, I have a perfect body that I don't have to worry about bad things. When you think, when you talk about how it runs the gamut, just the absolute gamut. Well, the early church knew that in in Christian times, they used to have those passion plays where they would do stories from the Bible. And the um, people putting on the shows noticed right away that when they do you know the heaven and the angels the people sit in their seats and they kind of pay attention but they you know they're you can tell they're sort of sitting there but when the devil showed up people (laughs) were jumping up and down they were cheering they couldn't get enough of it and that's just part of the human condition always has been
0: yeah well you know that's one of the interesting things about the history of the church is really people i don't think people would have gone if those stories weren't what they are and Mm -hmm. It's it's the same reason people watch true crime shows.
1: Exactly, yeah. <laughs>
0: exactly.
1: I think Clyde Barker said people love to be scared because it makes them think, Like, first of all, it gets your heart racing, makes you know you're alive. But I think he said, too, that you kind of know from your personal experience there's there's bad stuff out there. But being scared kind of makes you think, well, if all the really dark stuff is true, maybe the good stuff is true, too. And so scare, a scare kind of reminds us of that. But but you're right. I mean, it's definitely it's a it's a it's a pulse uh, racer, to be scared. Yeah. So and it I, definitely I, got people into the pews.
0: So so going into into this, did you? I'm curious how it might might have shifted any beliefs that you had. So like, what were some beliefs that you had before versus after? Did it strengthen any beliefs? Did it completely change your mind on some things?
1: It it it. Changed in, um, it, it did change in some ways. I grew up Catholic, still am. I went through Catholic school. And, you know, when you start in Catholic school, the idea of hell is always, um, you know, the, the red devils with the horns and the pointy tails and the pitchforks. It's all metaphors, obviously, for, for younger people and for beginners. Uh, then you get a little bit older, you start, you know, I started reading C.S. Lewis and some others who really kind of shifted the idea that hell is really, you um, your own perception of reality, and there are a lot of um, there are a lot of takes on that. Like I'm sure you've heard of the no exit, the Sart um, play. Uh, there's Night Gallery has done episodes, twilight's have done, ep- done episodes where people are in the same setting but some of them are in heaven, but some of them are in hell because the most famous one is there's one that's sort of like a waiting room where there's music being played. And there's like an old couple talking between themselves. They're in heaven because for them, it's kind of fun. It's quiet. They're away from the workaday world. But for the businessman who's sitting there, who's like, oh my gosh, this is so boring. You know, when is this going to be over? So um, my vision sort of morphed. um, It was definitely shaped by that. And then I guess the older I got, the more I started really um, thinking about the idea of hell. Hell is often referred to in older texts as chaos. Dante uh, alluded to that—that that it's chaos. And if you think about it, yeah, order is. There's something calming about order. We like order. We like to know our routine. We like to know that when we open the fridge, our you know milk is going to be there, and our you know we can grab something to eat. We like order in our lives. Chaos would be just it it would be unlivable if every time we open, you know, the fridge sometime, oh, there's a snake in there or, you know, now it's on fire. And every time we try to get in our car, there's a different place to put the key. I mean, just you can't (laughs) imagine a life where there's no such thing as order. And so the idea of hell being chaos makes sense. And especially the more I learn about people who are having mental health issues, I don't I'm not saying that they're evil. I'm saying that must be a living hell is to have no underpinning for your everyday life to have, you know, issues where you're just not sure of anything, how, and I just have a a real serious sympathy for people going through anything like that, because that, that just must absolutely be, uh, I can't imagine a worse thing to tolerate, even physical pain, physical pain, your brain can understand it. And again, I'm not trying to minimize people in physical pain, but you can put it in a framework Um, but if, if you have mental problems and again, you don't know, is this person who's talking to me, she looks like my mom, but maybe she's a stranger coming to trick me. And, you know, if you just, if your whole life was that series of interactions, that would just be absolutely uh, intolerable. And I'm, I am think more and more that's that makes more sense with the idea of hell being chaos, that nothing ever makes sense. There is no order. There's no sense of it's going to get better soon, or there's a possibility it can get better because there's no main line to start from. Hmm. So yeah. I have I have changed that since I've gotten um, the more research I've done.
0: That is interesting. And, and it makes sense to me. Like that makes it very accessible, uh, as a concept, and honestly, like I grew up in a religious household that um, I I could never make heads or tails of any of that stuff. But what you just said makes total sense to me. So
1: spent a lot of time researching.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, I think the fact that you kind of take it an academic approach to a certain extent and then merging it all together. Uh whereas you know when you're just in one belief system, mm-hmm. it just there's always going to be questions. And it no matter what right. that system is, exactly but when you bring it all together and you can come to some sort of tangible, grounded understanding, uh then we could start having a, a real conversation about it.
1: So. Exactly. I think um I think too, there's definitely a component that gets overlooked a lot when you're looking from any particular viewpoint, whether it's from a religion or saying, Oh, I don't believe there's any supernatural. When, when you start from a viewpoint like that, rather than start rather than starting from, okay, I'm going to be sort of, I'm going to stand outside the issue and just kind of look at all of it. You really do put limits on yourself without realizing it. And the way I always think of it is um, most religions that do believe in any kind of Supreme being in any kind of God, they believe that that God is infinite and all powerful so from an academic standpoint, I've always thought about, OK, well, if God is infinite, then every different faith system, including faith that believes there is no God, reflects sort of a different part of that infinite capability. So and rather than one, you know, having a monopoly on everything, it's like, OK, um, every, every faith, even if it's just a faith of, you know, 12 tribesmen in the middle of nowhere who've come up with their own belief system, that's got to reflect some aspect of an omniscient, omnipotent creator. Um, And then if you look at it like that, then I guess what I'm saying is I'm always looking for things that are commonality and overlap or that are like looking for pieces of a jigsaw puzzle i'm not looking at a painting that's already done and analyzing it i'm trying to put together sort of a puzzle and oh here's a piece over here and here's a piece over here and here maybe this religion has 20 pieces that i can use um but then when you when i start looking at it like that it's just it's really amazing to me how much uh, agreement and uh, commonality there is, whereas I think a lot of people start from the standpoint of, okay, we don't agree on this, so we're going to focus on this, and it's really harder to get a picture than of a uh, sort of looking at the science or the the um, like you say the academic aspects of it. If you immediately start with, okay, we're going to you know we're taking sides and and then we're going to argue a point, you get what I try to do is not so much argue a point, it's to ascertain information.
0: Yeah, and I think that's what really caught my eye. Uh, And yeah, that's it. (laughs) Um, So what kind of feedback have you received with your work from the public uh, that stands out to you that you just, uh, I mentioned Encyclopedia of Hell, when you When I mention that, what comes to mind in terms of uh, the feedback you've gotten over the years?
1: um well, when I was first writing it, and even when i when it first came out, and sometimes now, when people hear the, for the first time that I've written a book about hell um i tend I tend to get two sort of major reactions to to the subject matter some people do not want to talk about it at all. They immediately are like, Oh my gosh, you did what? Oh, you know, what else, what else, oh, you know, what else can we talk about? And I understand that that's okay. That that doesn't hurt my feelings. Um, the other reaction I get is people tell me stories with incredible graphic detail that, I would never share with probably my closest friend because people will tell me about like, oh, their friend who, you know, dabbled in Satanism and they did this awful thing or something that they personally have done. Or a lot of people will say, well, you know, I'm trying to figure out how bad is bad that I, you know, I can do a lot of bad stuff, but still get into heaven. Like, how about I did this and this and this, do you think I will go to hell for that? And I'm always like, you know what, buddy, You're, you're oversharing. This is way too much information, but people really did share. A lot of things, and some of it was really heartbreaking. In Bandon Gate, um, there's a story about a man. There's a I call back. There, there really was a man who had a daughter who he lost to a cult, and at the time. I was writing the book, he would call, he would call me and leave me these really heartbreaking messages on that was back in the day where, you know, you had a cassette tape that for an answering machine and he would leave me these really long until the tape ran out talking about his daughter was gone and he wanted to bring um, attention to this and try to get, you know, somebody to do something about it. But the girl was 18. So the authorities couldn't do anything. And it was just really heartbreaking. And I, I felt bad, but because I kept telling him, I can't, there's no way I can use this in my book. It doesn't really fit my topic. And it just, it didn't work. But then I finally just stopped calling him back and he stopped calling me. But I mean, even to this day, I think about him and I, I hope, you know, things worked out for him, but, um, but yeah, he, he was just an example of people who would kind of reach out with um, sometimes really graphic stories and sometimes just really heartbreaking stories. Um, but that was a pretty common reaction. Um, I was at a party, not just this past Christmas with some of my husband's work friends. And um, it came up that I'd written a book about hell. And that now I was writing this book, Bandingate, Gate, that called back some of that information. And she very nicely, but very seriously said to me, um, have you ever thought about having past life regression therapy to find out if you were a serial killer in a previous existence? <laughs> so
0: that's a great question yeah
1: i said (laughs) i I haven't but uh something definitely something to ponder
0: well let's let's um let's go into banding gate because i think this is pretty cool um the you, you brought some of your research into it but what was this the ultimate seed for starting the project
1: um, there were really a couple of things that sort of um, like if you could do a Venn diagram, it's where these things overlap that Bandingate was born. And one of them was my husband and I had just moved to Charleston. We, we're from the DC area. We both born and grew up in the Washington DC area, in Northern Virginia. We had just moved to Charleston, South Carolina, which is about 500 miles away. My dad retired down here, and we wanted to sort of be close to him. And we'd always vacation down here. We liked the area. My kids at that point, they're, uh, they're three years apart. They're three and three years. So they were in college. So they stayed in Northern Virginia. We were down in Charleston and we weren't down here two or three months. And I got a phone call one morning and it was a man and there was a woman screaming in the background. And he said, I have your daughter, Abby. And if you don't, you know, capitulate to my demands, I'm going to torture her. I'm going to cut her fingers off. And, and, and it was very, very, um, obviously it was very traumatic, um, especially cause we'd only been down here such a short time. And there was, she was 22 at the time, 21, 22. And a par, big part of me felt like, Oh, maybe they're too young. Maybe the kids are too young to be, you know, staying up there on their own, even though they, they're really good friends and they had each other, the two boys lived together and Abby lived close by. Um, but I was already sort of worried about it. So that was Venn diagram. That was one circle. Then the next circle that happened in a in a similar time frame, was um, I'd found out some information about a place I had been months before. Months before, I'd found this gate and out in the middle of nowhere. It really was this weird gate that it, with a road that seemed like you know why is there this elaborate structure that had all these weird things attached to it? It did have a creepy mask and all these um, you know uh, there were like a little old toys and par- uh, machine parts and just all these things attached to this gate. And i had taken pictures, I thought it was a folk art project, or somebody's, you know, somebody sort of, you know, found art. And I'd taken pictures of it, and and I put them on. And, and a few days before the, the call, I got that Abby was kidnapped. I put, I posted them online on there's a site that does South Carolina scenic pictures, and I posted them online, just sort of making a joke about, ha ha, this river doesn't go to entry. Well, around the same time that I got the call about Abby's kidnapping, people started responding to that, saying, I know, I know what that is. That is to; um, those are all blessed objects, and it's painted that weird color, hank blue, because that's a barrier against evil spirits. And then, um, and then I put on; I I responded online saying, "Oh, you know, it just seemed interesting." And my daughter Abby, the one who was kidnapped. Um, She'd always been interested in uh, the macabre and and haunting. Uh, She was a zombie at a big theme park near where we lived. And she really got into that. So I had taken her to that gate. And then one of the comments when I said that, they said, oh, you shouldn't have taken your daughter there. You're inviting evil upon her. And I had sort of said like, oh, no, you know, I'm sure she's okay, or whatever. And then they responded, well, how do you know she's 500 miles away? So that was sort of like circle number two. And then the last circle is Charleston really is considered one of the most haunted places in America. There are there are all kinds of places here. The, the old city jail uh, back in the late 1600s, it's a four acre site that back in the 1600s was a graveyard for indigents. Nobody knows how many bodies were buried there over the years. Then it became the city jail. And until it was closed down in 1939, 14,000 people died there. Um, and And to this day, people go there and they say, you can just get that weird, creepy presence as soon as you walk in. And there's others. There's a Dock Street Theater where they say spirits walk. And there are just so many sightings and and stories about ghosts in Charleston. So, and that's what I'm saying. So we were already in a place where that happened. And so when those three things sort of came together, I really did start thinking after what happened with Abby. Yeah, what would what, what I do if something terrible happened? A, a kidnapping is bad, but you can, you know, a kidnapping is usually some thug who wants money or something. And you can kind of rationalize and, and figure out what to do. You can get the police to help you. What if something paranormal did happen? And I think it was just Abby was the, it stood out with Abby because of the kidnapping thing. And also she's the only girl. I have two boys and, and, you know, whatever people say, I can tell you as a mom, at least for me, girls always feel more vulnerable. It just, to me, it always seems like, you know, there's, and she's just got a sweet personality. She was living by herself at the time. And, um and, and my husband was traveling all the time and I would lay awake at night and just start thinking about like, oh my gosh, you know how do I know she's okay? How do I know all of them are okay? And what if something happened? What would I do? And that was the, that was the real beginning of me writing the story of Gate.
0: What year uh, did the phone call occur?
1: That was in 2018, I think.
0: Okay. Yeah. That's a, a fairly new weird phone scam where they're hoping to get people to panic and send Bitcoin or something.
1: Yeah, I have yeah. since heard like that's kind of making the rounds now. But yeah, this would have been it was like 2016, 2018. It was um, it was at a time where any of those scams and any anything like that was fairly uncommon. I mean, everybody the Nigerian prince thing was around then. Where oh, you know, I need to send you ten million dollars. So what's your bank account number? Um, part of what made it really scary, though, with Abby is at the time she's she's a criminology student and she was working. As, she was a guard in a jail in northern Virginia that housed a lot of MS-13, a lot of cop killers. Um, and more than once, things did happen at the jail where the, the guards and the corrections officers were threatened. And and again, it's just it was that weird overlap of uh, as human beings, we can only do so much to protect And then to try to save and help our loved ones. But then what do you do when you get to that barrier of, okay, now maybe I'm in a realm of things that go beyond. I I can't call the police to say my daughter was kidnapped by a ghost or, you know, is being possessed by a demon. Um, And even even for people who don't believe in that, don't believe in the supernatural, whatever, it's still, you know, it's still a, a thought process when you're, especially, I guess, when you're a parent or, you know, everyone has people in their lives they love. And you do think like, how far would I go if something happened to this person? And, um, and if there was nobody else around to help me, what would I do? What would I, you know, how would I react? Hmm. And, you know, and again, it does, it, I'm sure it didn't help that I grew up watching, you know, Twilight Zone and, you (laughs) know, (laughs) opening up my mind to a lot of these crazy things that people say, oh, that can never happen, but you still think about them. Yeah. When I read Salem's Lot, I slept with a rosary around my neck for months afterwards. So I, I, I know that, you know, once a seed gets planted, even though in your mind you're thinking, oh, there's no such thing as vampires. I'm fine. But it doesn't hurt to sleep with a rosary around your neck. So, just,
0: for, just for safety.
1: Yeah, you never know.
0: Well, earlier you mentioned the color blue. What was the specific color of blue?
1: Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, that's a Southern, that's definitely a Southern Sea Islands and coastal uh, tradition. Uh, uh, Ghosts in Southern, usually uh, Southern culture, Gullah culture, especially the Gullah were, uh, uh, they were slaves who were stolen from Africa, from the, they have the thing there called the Rice Coast. And these slaves were targeted because they were really good, in agriculture and in engineering, and they were brought to the Charleston area because we have the similar um, growing conditions. There are salt marshes here where they flood with salt water. The the freshwater rivers flood with salt water during high tide, and so you have to be really careful using water to irrigate. Um, so anyway, so these particular slaves were targeted when they came to South Carolina and, uh, and this part of the coast. You know, the The Gullah region runs from North Carolina down in northern Florida, um, and there's a lot of little barrier islands along there. The white Europeans couldn't take the heat and the humidity, Um, alligators. There's a lot of different snakes here. There's mosquitoes constantly and all different kinds of bugs. They couldn't deal with it. So the 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 slave owners um, and they moved and the the aristocracy, moved inland to where it was cooler. They moved up to the mountain country and they left the slaves to take care of the plantations by themselves. And in doing that, they also then these people were able to develop their own culture. They uh, the Gullah have a language that's it's Creole and it's different um, from different African languages and a little bit of English and the same with their spiritual practices. And the spirituality is a big component of it. And from the Gullah tradition, we get the idea of Haint's Haint is what they would call a, a sort of a wandering, angry ghost. Um, it's from a word haunter, which actually, which means haunted and, and um, uh, sort of menacing. Um, anyway, and then part of the belief is that haints are afraid of water. They cannot cross water. So if you wanted to protect yourself from haints, there's a very specific color called haint blue. It's sort of an aqua, a kind of a light blue, and they would paint the uh, like the underhangings of roofs and of porches and they maybe the shutters they would paint that color paint blue they paint the color paint blue onto their homes so that when spirits came about they would see it and mistake it for water and then move on to the next target so if you are ever in the anywhere along the east coast if you look around you'll notice there's a lot of paint blue especially again in very specific areas underhangings tend to be at porches outdoor areas it's a very very popular color.
0: I brought it up because it's so interesting the way the universe works after I scheduled this podcast with you and I didn't, didn't put this together until this very moment. TikTok started pushing these construction videos to me where people just keep talking about hate blue and why you find <laughs> it all over the South. And
1: oh, uh, wow. I'm like,
0: wait, is there yeah, a weird. connection here? And, and there absolutely is. Weird. Yeah, that is
1: weird. Yeah, that paint blue isn't a thing. Other, I mean, it's a, it's known now. But that's one hundred percent where it came from was this area. So that is weird that all of a sudden.
0: It it uh, it gets even weirder because I don't. I'm not a handyman. I don't watch construction videos. I could care less. I don't know why it pushed it to me. Wow. Yeah. It's a warning. Spooky. <laughs>
1: yeah.
0: Uh, that kind of stuff. I found it with this particular podcast, especially like the more I introduce certain subject matters, the weirder things get. Like I first introduced the UFO topic on the podcast in January, and the night I, in one night, I booked four guests, and then I went out for a walk, and there were the strangest things in the sky that night, just yeah. the weirdest things. And yeah. I won't go into them on this one, but. Uh, yeah, I found that you, once you look into a subject matter, the universe seems to know.
1: Yeah, yeah. Uh,
0: do you ever feel like there are things we're not supposed to know?
1: Uh, yeah, I guess I do. Um, bigger topics, like you say, I think the bigger questions, if we knew the answers, in a lot of ways, it would it would take away the flavor of life. Uh, there's a saying, you know, faith is called faith for a reason, because if it was all proven, it wouldn't, you wouldn't need faith. There's, I guess I, I, um, I always like to, when people want to talk religious concepts, people who either don't believe in religion or they're not sure, I always try to translate it into like, okay, let's start within what we know. Let's talk about things we know. And my, um, cor- my metaphor for, uh, understanding the idea of faith in the afterlife and God is always love. Like you love your spouse you lo- and you hope they love you, but you do that on faith because what's the alternative? Are you going to bug their phone? Are you going to follow <laughs> them around? Are you going to quote unquote prove that they're being faithful to you? How happy would you be if that was your life that you did that to your spouse or your you know, significant other? They did that to you. That's not a lo- That's not a happy life. And the human spirit, there's something about it. We want to believe. We don't, we don't want to be shown. We say we want to be shown and proven. And I mean, obviously, some things we do. We want to know that it's safe to drive our car. We want some things proven. But when it comes to matters of the heart and matters of our own destiny, we like that element of the unknown in it. And if everything was just sort of laid out for us there it would just take all the flavor out of it all the spice out of it all the all the mystery if you knew every time you walked into a casino exactly how many hands you're going to win how many hands you're going to lose but you still had to do it anyway would you even go i mean it's just there's just something about that element of not knowing that makes us what we are And I definitely think about that every now and then people say, would you want to know exactly when you're going to die? Would you want to know exactly what you're going to die of? And I think even people say yes, in a lot of ways, they really would think no. And not, I mean, it's one thing, if do you want to know you're going to die and you can do something about it, you know, if it's a warning like, hey, don't, you know, don't drink that, whatever, it's probably poison. Yeah, obviously that. But if somebody said, I can tell you right now that, you know, this is it, this is when you're going to die in hell and whatever. I think most people really, when it comes down to it, don't want to know that because then the rest of your life, you're just counting down toward that that minute. And you can't pay attention to all the beautiful little nothings of an everyday, you know, sort of seemingly mundane existence. If you're always focusing on the one quote unquote big thing, there's the analogy of the Holy grail that uh, finding the, if you ever found the Holy grail, it's a blessing and a curse. Because finding it, looking into it, holding it, that would be the pinnacle of your existence. There would be nothing like it. It would be incredible. And then everything after that would be downhill and you would know it. And I I do think it goes the same for knowing things about the broader universe, about ourselves. And then even beyond that, the pursuit of, of finding out those things, the testing of different theories, the contemplation, the discussion like we're having now. That's a big part of life, too. And if we knew everything, quote unquote, we wouldn't have these conversations. We wouldn't be, we wouldn't look at old paintings and read old texts and try to figure out what people were thinking when they did them. We, we just, that whole element of our life would be gone too. And um, so, yeah, I definitely do think there are things that uh, we're not really meant to know for, for our own good. Yeah.
0: Well, you know, I, I tend to be a connoisseur of people's near-death experiences. I'm always reading interviews or watching videos of people who flatlined and came back. And uh, it seems like whenever they're asked if they've gleaned any idea of purpose, what is the purpose of it all, most of the answers somehow come come back to we're just supposed to interact with one another.
1: Yeah, exactly. I think so too. I think that really, the number one thing that I think, uh, again, whether you believe in God or not, there's something in born in humans. We want to connect. We want to connect and, like you say, interact. We want to, whether it's our parents, our spouses, our siblings, our friends, our coworkers. There's just something about it. And I think you're right. When people have those near-death experiences. And I, during the course of writing the books, um, I actually did um, had a lot of contact with people who had both the good experiences and some who had the not so good experiences. They all said the same thing that they needed to be c- kinder to the people, spend more time with them, enjoy enjoy the little things more, be more present in the moment. Um, and I think you're right that that makes sense. I mean that that makes sense with what we know and what we see every day. Who are the people in our in our everyday experience? Who are the villains? They're the people who break connections. They're the, you know, the, the mass shooters who go and kill people. So you cannot connect with them again. The people who just angrily for petty reasons say, well, if you don't want to do what I say, I'm not going to be your friend anymore. People who break connections tend to be the villains in life. And obviously um, the people then who want to build connections, we see them as heroes. Who, Who are the people we think of as heroes? It's the The Mr. Rogers of the world and the, you know, and the Gandhi's and the Mother Teresa, people who reach out and who don't set up barriers, who don't make you, you know, meet a bunch of criteria, who are just always there with an open hand. That that's humanity.
0: That is an interesting and profound idea of hero and villain.
1: Yeah. It's really true though. I think if you think even if you think about like comic book villains and you know, movie superheroes. Uh, the, the one thing that heroes seem to share is that they're, they're trying to help people be together, get together, uh, going back to the idea of order and chaos. That's another way to put it. You know, heroes breaking connections is chaos, building and maintaining connections is heroism. And I, again, that's what I'm saying. If you if you get to a point where you're thinking, well, I just I can't quite accept the idea of God I understand that. I definitely understand that. I don't think people who don't believe in God are bad. I don't think they're evil. I think that they're just working through a process and they've just come to that conclusion at a particular time. Maybe they'll change their mind. Maybe they won't. But what I always try to point out to them is, okay, but in your lived experience, don't you find these things tend to be universal? There are definite universals. And that is one of them, is that people who are considered likable, heroic, uh, people we want to be around, are the kind of people who will throw their arms around other people who will make space at the table. If, you know, somebody doesn't have anywhere to go on Thanksgiving, they're the people who will remember to call somebody when they've had a tragedy in their life. That's a universal thing. The people we do not want in our lives are people who are always sowing dissent and trying to like, you know, gossip and get a little bit of something going. Well, if you're her friend, you can't be my friend. And, oh, I know you think this person is nice, but let me tell you what they did. Those are people we don't want to be around. Those are those are negative qualities, and that is a universal truth. Whatever your thoughts are on on anything beyond that. Yeah,
0: well, I, w- I would agree with that one hundred percent. Like, it's it's about how you interact with people, and that you do, and uh, yeah, it doesn't matter what you actually believe about the nature of the universe, because in the end. <laughs> There's nowhere yeah. we're ever really going to know as long as we're alive. <laughs> yeah,
1: exactly. I, I have a i I have a lot of friends and a lot of people I talk with who we have completely different ideas, and we'll talk about it, but we don't really fight and argue. And then we kind of jokingly we always leave it as well. One day we'll we'll find out, you know, <laughs> one, of, one, of, one of our other of us is right, and and we'll find out. And you know, I, we hope the best for each other, and and that's where you really have to leave it. That's that's where that's where humanity has to leave it, and that's okay. That's okay.
0: Yeah. I, uh, it's so interesting because hearing you talk, talk about all this, is the first thing that comes to mind is my, my experience in finding a creative practice. So I'm 40 years old. I've spent most of my adult life trying to find the most efficient and effective way to not only start a project, which is easy, but to finish a project, which is difficult. And, yeah. and I realized that if I plan out a project and I know exactly what all, this, all the movements are going to be, whether it's a novel or a film, I tire of it the moment I've mapped it out. And I'll, I'll tell this to younger people, especially who who are in their undergrad and they're looking for a life in creativity. Uh, I say, well, maybe loosely have an idea. Right. But if you just kind of go into it not knowing everything, you're more exactly. likely to finish it. And I think that's also the key to life is, is don't know Exactly.
1: Anything. I think that's it, too. They, you know, in, you know in, in writing, there's always a there's sort of a, an adage about let your characters surprise you. Let them tell you where they're going. And it's like you just said, yeah, if you sit down and say, okay, I'm going to write out this and I've got the entire plot and outline and index card. <laughs> yeah. And then it feels like a chore. It's, it tends to be brittle and stale. But if you kind of have a concept and sort of where you want it to go, and then, like you said, as you work through it, be willing to throw away your ending and rewrite it. Be willing to, to make a minor character major character. I mean, whatever it is, like you say, if you're doing a documentary, be willing to go down a side street on an idea that maybe wasn't the primary. And I think you're exactly right. Life has to be that way, too. Let life surprise you. And, and some surprises will be good, and you will get joy from them. And some surprises will be bad, and you will get wisdom from them. And that's the way to proceed.
0: What else are you working on? Do you have another book in the works?
1: I do. I have another book. Uh, the other, the next book I'm working on, um, it's about a paranormal phenomenon that doesn't exist right now so i'm writing a backstory of science to go with it now first of all i'm not a science person (laughs) at all but i need to do like basic science of like well how could this paranormal phenomenon work and what would be the terms for it, what would be so i'm just coming up with like a little bit of language and um just enough i've I've, I've talked to scientists and, and through the course of uh as i said i'm really a research writer at heart and and um whenever i read whenever i interview anybody i i try to not just pick up from them what i'm interviewing them about but try to get to know something about the kind of person they are and the kind of um you know their thought process i find that really interesting well i've talked to enough scientists to know that um for paranormal phenomenon to be even plausible that you'd have to have a scientist involved and scientists they don't try to prove that paranormal phenomenon exists but they try to find rationality behind it. Um, And so that's really what I'm trying to work on now. So I'm kind of doing the wonky stuff now of like, okay, how, like for example, if if I were writing about telekinesis, you know, like what Carrie had, moving things with the mind, then from the scientific standpoint, I try to be thinking about, okay, if I were a scientist, I'd be trying to prove that, oh, you know, thoughts emit waves which can have you know displace physical properties blah 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 like I said I'm not a scientist but I would kind of go down that road <laughs> so I'm doing that now but I do have a basic and like you were saying I have a basic idea for, a for this story and I've been kind of toying with it for a couple of years and it's a very different story when I first than when I first started writing it. And you're right if I had stuck to the original idea it would have been okay but I don't think it would have been as good. Um, and I, I think, like you said, you've got to have the door open for that. But yeah, but that's what I'm working on now.
0: Yeah, I actually really like that. This it's sort of a, a very in depth version of world building where uh, you're figuring out how it works, so you don't, so you know the kind of rules of your universe. Um, right. Uh, I, I kind of do something similar where um, I logically understand why ghosts can exist in, in any universe I write in, or why te- oh, you mentioned telekinesis i have a logic for that too mm-hmm. um and it's all informed by the fact that i acknowledge in almost any story i do that it's a simulated reality and mm-hmm. uh run essentially by me and so every right. character has their version of me that they are aware of it's super meta <laughs>
1: that's a good way to do it that's a good way to do it and you know what per- things that are more personal closer to your heart they write better and they read better you know your readers will pick that up there's a there's a dimension and a depth to it that i think you're i think that's a good idea that you're putting that into your writing i think that's that's a really good idea Well,
0: it's really just like after 2016 everything became personal and i for some reason i'm sure a variety of reasons really but um it's just like i don't want to turn out anything that I can't say this is me. Right. Every time it has to be me. No, that's uh, good.
1: That, that should be to thine own self be true. Yeah. I didn't say that Shakespeare did, but still true.
0: Yeah.
1: I forget what I I'm going to say when, not if I get my next book done, I'll send you an advanced copy because I'd love to hear what you think of it.
0: Yeah. And then we can come back on and talk about that one too.
1: <laughs> that sounds good.
0: No, I, I think you're a great writer. Yeah. And, 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 and that's not easy for me to to say to people because I'm very very picky but oh. I, I love where your mind is at I, I, I love how philosophical you are in, in the way you talk and uh, yeah you're you're a good spirit and you're welcome on the show anytime you want.
1: Well thank you very much and you're a hero because what you're doing is connecting people and that is the work of the angels
0: Oh thank you thank you um, and and I hope that some of the listeners are inspired by this conversation, a lot of my listeners are are creative types, uh, MFA writer types. And, uh, I think there was a lot here that could really get the juices flowing for a lot of them. So,
1: (laughs) well, good. Well, I would like to tell all of them, stick with it. You know, a lot of times as as a writer coming up, people kept telling me, oh, that's the most overcrowded field. You won't do well. Don't listen. All, All you people out there, if you've got something to say, you say it, you express it. No one can say what you say. No one has lived your life. Keep going at it. Don't don't be discouraged.
0: One hundred percent. I agree with that. And so, thank you for coming on. And I will email you to let you know exactly when it's going to be released. It'll be thank sometime you. in May. But
1: okay, great. Right. Thank you so much. I've really enjoyed it.
0: Thank you. I did too. <laughs> okay. Bye.
1: Right.
0: And if you're ever if you're ever in New York to do like a reading or whatever, feel free to invite me. Throw me on, okay, a, on the definitely. email list. All right. Okay.
1: Good. Right. Thank you. All right.
0: Bye. Thank you for listening to my podcast. If you have a moment, please consider subscribing to the show wherever you listen. And if the app allows for it, please leave a rating and review. That way, the algorithm moves us up in recommendations. It's a great way for new listeners to find our show. Thanks, and I'll see you on the next episode.